Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Sarah Shaw. And I'm Lydia Jordan, and we are wrapping up November. We're a little bit late, but you know what? It's always November in our hearts, so. It's always <laughs> November, even in December. <laughs> That's right. It's November every month. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but thanks for being patient. We were dying. Sarah was sick, and I was just overwhelmed so here we are you were also sick right before me though so we had a hard time but we made it it's so embarrassing after three years of not getting it I finally got it and it literally destroyed me so please get your boosters and stay healthy don't get COVID yeah please do (laughs) I in fact did get my booster and I did not get COVID so I just had the flu so proud of you but um (laughs) this thank you so much the bar is low it's like we're so proud when I just have the flu (laughs) But um, yeah, it was good. It's good to be back. We're both feeling healthy. Uh, still pretty ragged, but we're here and we're ready to go. We made it through. Yes, we did. And really excited to talk about this week's movie. It'll be really fun. Um, and also disclaimer, we are not drinking today, but if you are missing cocktail content, please head over to our TikTok because I have been doing a jam cocktail every day with the amazing advent calendar <laughs> from Bun Maman that Sara sent me. So stay tuned over there. New cocktails are coming out every single day for the next while until Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, Lydia really, like, made a decision to just commit to one jam cocktail a day, and we're we're doing it. It's happening. Yes, and I also <laughs> got tasked with making, like, this year my, yeah, our, our team was like, oh, for our Christmas party this year, Lydia, why don't you make a cocktail? Like, teach everyone how to make a cocktail. So then I, like, proceeded to psych myself out for the, like, past two weeks trying to figure out what would be like the perfect cocktail so I am also going to be documenting that process because I have like enough ingredients for like six different cocktails and I'm having one of our friends come over tomorrow and we're gonna like do a like bracket ranking <laughs> to try to pick a finalist so stay tuned for amazing that. I can't we can't wait to follow that series should be good <laughs> um but we will be back with some really good content and cocktail stuff um in January we're probably gonna do dry January again but I think most of the recipes that we talk about you can add cocktail to it it's kind of we like to do stuff where you can go both ways with it um we are after this episode going to be taking a little break for December just because it's the holidays we're both going to be pretty busy um but we will be reposting some of our holiday episodes from last year and then we will be back in January with a new series, and you guys are just going to have to wait until then to find out what it is. I actually forgot what it is, so it'll be a surprise for all of us. <laughs> I did too, and that's why I said you're going to have to wait. <laughs> Wow. I can't wait for the reveal. We're all going to be like shock and awe, right? <laughs> we're all going to learn We're all gonna learn together in real time. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> we're all going to be surprised. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm excited. But I'm also excited to talk about the movie that we're going to be discussing today, because this is one of, um, one of, one of my favorites. the ones we watched. Yeah. It's one of the weirdest movies, like, made ever, in my opinion, but I love David Lynch. He's definitely not for everybody, but he's a pretty genius filmmaker, and if you can bring yourself to try to get into his movies, um, they're always worth it, in my opinion. So I'm really excited. This is probably his most famous film, um... And he is, if people would know um, him by the more popular uh, show Twin Peaks, that's also one of his shows. If you're familiar with that show, the movie is very similar in writing style as well. Perfect. Wow, what an intro. Thank you for teeing me up so perfectly. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump on in. I have a lot to talk about because this movie is ripe for analysis. So let's go ahead and get on into it. So, Mulholland Drive is a 2001 surrealist neo-noir mystery film written and directed by David Lynch, and it stars Naomi Watts, Laura ha- Laura Herring. I don't know why I was going to say Laura Haring. I'm sorry. Am I okay? <laughs> Laura Haring. Laura Haring. <laughs> Justin Thoreau, Anne Miller, Mark Pellegrino, and Robert Forster. It tells the story of an, insp- of an aspiring actress named Betty Elms, played by Naomi Watts, who's newly arrived in Los Angeles and who meets and befriends an amnesiac woman played by Haring. Herring. Oh my God. Am I? <laughs> Why? 
haven't even made it through the intro yet. <laughs> it's too early. <laughs> Anyways, she meets and befriends an amnesiac woman who is recovering from a car accident. The story follows several other vignettes and characters, including a Hollywood film director. So let's go ahead and get into the plot. It's very convoluted, and we'll talk a little bit more after this kind of about the analysis and the different ways that you could interpret this film, because I think that there's a lot of different ways that you could potentially see this going, and I'm interested to get your take on it. Definitely, and I do think, like, when we say convoluted... Um, I'm just going to put it out there. This plot is weird. Like, it is the definition of weird. It's very weird. But in the best way. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really, really beautiful. But it is just straight up very strange. Yeah. this movie is very, very strange. It's one of those movies where I do think you have to pay closer attention. Because there was a couple moments where I got distracted. And I was like, wait, what's happening? Because there are these different breaks that you'll see when we talk about the plot. Where it kind of jumps to a different, like timeline or storyline and it's a very abrupt there's also kind of a lot of these little vignettes that are cutting back and forth and so it can be hard to kind of keep track of like what's going on there's also not a ton of dialogue so you're kind of left to intuit what you will from different scenarios and situations which I just feel like you have to have it, it's a to me it's a thinking film like it's not just to sit back and enjoy it like you have to be actively engaged and kind of almost like participatory in order for this film to be enjoyable yeah, and it's, like, it's really interesting because, and like you said, it it is a very interactive movie because it is, it's it's kind of unusual to have a movie that jumps between timelines and perspectives because it, it kind of does, I mean, it is obviously Naomi Watts is the main character, but it does jump, there's a lot of characters in this movie and it does jump between character perspective as well as character interpretation of, like, what's going on like the same person will play kind of multiple people but it's the same person and also there's different timelines almost in terms of like different universe time like it's very it's very interesting but also you could interpret it not that way too so that's what's it's you have to pay attention to this movie when you're watching it definitely so disclaimer at the top if that's not your film style this might not be the movie for you but this might not be the movie for you yeah but anyways without further ado we'll go ahead and jump into it again like you mentioned the cinematography in this film is stunning stunning um and I always love I don't know why but I just like love movies set in LA where they're just like very self-referential I just think it's like fascinating to me All right, so the film opens with a dark-haired woman um who is the sole survivor of a car crash on Mulholland Drive It's a winding road in the Hollywood Hills. You're like looking out over the city and injured and in shock. She makes her way down into Los Angeles and sneaks into an apartment. Later that morning, an aspiring actress named named Betty Elms arrives at the apartment, which is normally occupied by her aunt Ruth. Betty is startled to find the woman who has amnesia and calls herself Rita after seeing a poster for the film Gilda starring our girl Rita Hayworth um, in the bathroom. To help the woman remember her identity, Betty looks in Rita's purse where she finds a large amount of money and an unusual blue key. Then we break to a diner called Winkies, where another man, where a man tells another man about a nightmare in which he dreamt of encountering a horrific figure behind the diner that they're at. When they investigate, the figure appears, causing the man who had the nightmare to collapse in fright. Elsewhere, <laughs> director Adam Kesher has his film commandeered by mobsters who insist he cast an unknown actress named Camilla Rhodes as the lead. Adam refuses and returns home to find his wife Lorraine cheating on him. When the mobsters withdraw his line of credit, Adam arranges to meet a mysterious cowboy who cryptically urges him to cast Camilla for his own good. Meanwhile, a bungling hitman (laughs) attempts to steal a book full of phone numbers and leaves three people dead in like this shitty office building. (laughs) While trying to learn more about Rita's accident, Betty and Rita go to Winkies and are served by a waitress named Diane, which causes Rita to remember the name Diane Selwyn. They find Diane Selwyn in the phone book and call her, but she doesn't answer. Betty goes to an audition where she where her performance is highly praised, and a casting agent takes her to a soundstage where a film called The Sylvia North Story, directed by Adam, is being cast. When Camilla Rhodes auditions with the song I've Told Every Little Star, Adam capitulates to casting her. 
Betty locks eyes with Adam, but she flees before she can meet him, saying she's late to meet a friend. Betty and Rita go to Diane Selwyn's apartment, where a neighbor answers the door and tells them that she has switched apartments with Diane. They go to the neighbor's apartment and break in when no one answers the door, and in the bedroom they find the body of a woman who has been dead for several days. Terrified, they return to Betty's apartment, where Rita disguises herself with a blonde wig, and she and Betty end up hooking up. At 2 a.m., Rita awakens suddenly, insisting that they go right away to a theater called Club Silencio. There, the MC explains in different languages that everything is an illusion. Rebecca Del Rio comes on stage and begins singing the song Crying in Spanish, then collapses unconscious while her vocals continue in playback, which is like such a creepy scene. Yeah, really creepy. Yeah. Very unsettling. It not, it's not the same thing, but it's very reminiscent of, like, the Red Room from um, Twin Peaks as well. Yeah, it also kind of gives, like, Wizard of Oz vibes. It does. It, yeah. This whole movie is, like, a dream. It's, like, you feel like you're, like, in, like, a weird, like, fever dream. Yeah. <laughs> this whole movie. Definitely. <laughs> That's yeah. the vibe for sure. Um, while they're at Club Silencio, Betty finds a blue box in her purse that matches Rita's key. Upon returning to the apartment, Rita retrieves the key and finds that Betty has disappeared. Rita unlocks the box and it falls falls on the floor. Aunt Ruth enters the room to find nobody. Which again, very you're like, wait, what's happening? (laughs) Yep, yep. Diane Selwyn wakes up in her bed in the same apartment Betty and Rita had investigated, where her neighbor informs her that two police officers have been looking for her. She looks exactly like Betty, but is a struggling actress driven into a deep depression by her failed affair with Camilla Rhodes, which is the actress that we had heard about earlier and was the same um, as Rita. Um, yeah, like it was clearly the same actress, just like with the different different hair. Um, at Camilla's invitation, Diane attends a party at Adam's house, who's the director on Mulholland Drive. At dinner, Diane states she came to Hollywood from Canada when her Aunt Ruth died and left her some money, and that she met Camilla at an audition for the Sylvia North story. Another woman who looks like the previous Camilla Rhodes kisses Camilla, and they turn and smile at Diane. Adam and Camilla prepare to make their marriage announcement, but they devolve into laughter and kiss while Diane watches crying. Later, Diane meets the hitman at Winkies to hire him to kill Camilla. He tells her that she will find a blue key when the job is completed. The figure from the man's dream is revealed to have the matching blue box. And in her apartment, Diane looks at the blue key on the coffee table when someone unceasingly knocks on her door. Distraught, she is terrorized by hallucinations and runs screaming into her bed where she shoots herself. And a woman at the theater whispers, Silencio. And that is the end. What a roller coaster. It really is. It's... (laughs) Yeah, it's like parallel universe. Yeah. It's just really And if you couldn't follow that, don't worry because it's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, we're going to attempt to break it down for you. I I just want to like say so kind of a side note tangent. I the first time I ever watched this movie, I had been wanting to it's been on my list for a long time. It was like 4 years ago. It was 3 years ago. Um it had been on my list forever. I it had like been I think either nominated or revealed to be like considered the best film of the 2000s by some like oh list that does that some organization that does that um and I was like that's really interesting a David Lynch movie usually his movies are very niche so I'm like this one's it's been on my list forever it's very famous let me watch it I watched this movie the night before I moved back to the west coast from Washington DC where I was living and my apartment I had like spent This, like, I spent, like, a whole week cleaning out my apartment. It was completely empty. All I had was my mattress in the living room and then my laptop watching this movie. So I felt like I was in a fever dream already. (laughs) And then I watched this movie and, like, it was, like, not a good vibe. You're like, this is (laughs) very unsettling. Like, I hate that. And then you go to sleep and you're just like, I don't feel okay. (laughs) Yeah, and it was, like, it was summer, so I had my, like, porch, like, door open. So, like, the the curtains were, like, billowing in the wind. I was like, this is awful. And then I rewatched it. Yeah, very ominous, and then I rewatched it, obviously, for this, and I was like, okay, I, I'm way more, like, in tune to what's happening. David Lynch movies, I feel like the strategy in watching them is you can't, you, like, should never expect to understand fully what's going on, because then you will not be paying attention to the movie. 
and you have to just kind of like let it take you on the journey and then try to like dissect it afterwards that's kind of how I've decided I need to approach his films yeah no I think that's that's the perfect way to approach it (laughs) yeah (laughs) no I love that story I mean yeah I think this is just such a weird movie we'll kind of unpack it a little bit more but it is very very confusing I don't know if you could even if you haven't seen the movie I don't even think that the plot would make sense to you from what I described because you're like what the fuck is going on yeah it just sounds like a bunch of random scenes from different movies being put together which it kind of is because let's talk let's talk a little bit about the development and I think that this actually makes a lot of sense with this film so this was originally conceived as a television series and it was supposed to be a follow-up kind of to his success on Twin Peaks Um, It began as a 90-minute pilot, which was produced for Touchstone Television and intended for ABC. Um, And everyone was really fired up about doing another television series. And Lynch sold the idea to ABC executives based on the story of Rita merging from the car accident um, with her purse containing $125,000 in cash and this mysterious blue key. Um, And this girl, Betty, trying to help her kind of figure out who it is, who she is. So everyone was pretty intrigued by this by this like concept, right? Like it sounds really cool. Um, so he went ahead and made a pilot, a rough cut of the pilot and showed it to the executives at ABC who fucking hated it and immediately canceled the project. (laughs) They were like, what were you thinking? You crazy motherfucker. Yeah. They're like, this is unhinged and no one's going to follow anything that's happening. Yeah, they're like, this is not the vibe that we thought this was going to be, so that's going to be a hard no. Yeah, so it would be interesting, like, I wish that we could see the rough cut of that pilot, because I am curious what it was like. Um, I wonder if it was, if it really was too out there, or maybe, you know, like, I mean, things happen where it can be a really great concept, it just doesn't get in front of the right people. Yeah, and that's what's really interesting to me because if you think about like how Twin Peaks even got greenlit, it's it also is a weird show and the pilot like nothing happens in the pilot. It's like very bizarre. I mean, it's a, it has a little bit of a linear plot and but it's it's really weird and like the first two or three episodes of that show are like really out there. So the fact that that worked and that was even able to like get, you know, picked up for series and this didn't even make it past getting greenlit as a pilot is really interesting. And I think it just goes to show, like you said, like it, it just, it kind of depends on who you put this in front of. Is it going to be a, like kind of a conventional executive or someone that's willing to like take a chance on something new? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what ended up happening is that one of Lynch's friends, a man named Pierre Endelman, um, who is from Paris, came to visit and they started talking about kind of repositioning this film from a TV series into a feature. And they actually kind of liked this idea because they felt like having more of a continuing story instead of, you know, making it more episodal would be maybe a better fit for kind of what it was that they were trying to communicate um, and kind of having the the space and like concentration to do that without kind of segmenting it into these smaller pieces. Um Again, I do think it would be interesting if this was a television series because I think that there's a lot that they didn't really get to explore and even things that they maybe intentionally left open-ended to see maybe how it would do at the box office to see if there would be a potential to make it into something else, but that obviously didn't end up happening, so... I think I would have really liked to see this as, like, a mini series. Like, it has a definite ending, but, like, an eight-episode kind of thing. Or, I mean, David Lynch at this point had made movies that were, like, three hours long. I know they're kind of, that's, like, they don't really do well, those kinds of movies. But I do think that this story would benefit from being fleshed out a, a little, little bit, bit more. more. I agree. Yeah. I think, because what was one of the other movies that we talked about recently that was supposed to be a series and then they pivoted it into... I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember. Was it Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? <laughs> or no, that was kind of the reverse. It started as a student film, and then they tried to expand it. Maybe I'm not thinking of the right thing, but I feel like we did talk about a movie recently that was similar, where it was supposed to be a television series, and then they made it into a movie instead. It's not coming to me right now. I think you're right. Eh, you but anyways, <laughs> I do think it's very interesting, and I think you you made exactly the point that I wanted to make, that like... There are some points where it does feel a little bit unsatisfying and unresolved, and I think that having a little bit more time would have allowed them to kind of develop that plot further and tie up some of those loose ends, because they have 
so many characters, all these little vignettes happening, but some of them do feel kind of unresolved and, like, unnecessary to the plot. Yeah, they do, but they also feel like it's intentionally unresolved because, like, a lot of David Lynch movies and shows, like, end that way. Like, it just feels like there is a lot. It's kind of one of those things that he leaves a lot open to interpretation. Um, Yeah, but, yeah, I think it would have been interesting to see a rough cut of this pilot to see, like, what direction that was going to go in. So let's talk a little bit about analysis of this film because I think that this film is fascinating because of just the multitude of interpretations that are out there. When I was doing my research for this episode, I mean, I'm pretty aligned on one of the theories and I'm interested to see if you feel the same, but it was interesting just the variety of theories that do exist and from very well-known film critics. So, I mean, I think that, again, this film is very much up for interpretation just because I think a certain way or or even, like, I'm interested to see what you think about it. This film is one of those things where there really isn't an answer and David Lynch has, like, never commented on its meaning or symbolism. So there isn't really any, like, clear guidance and he never talked about it with any of the actors either. So... (laughs) Yeah, and you can definitely tell because I think there is a sense of these actors are all interpreting it in their own way. And I think Lynch does that on purpose, right? Because then you get you get a very fragmented story, which like this movie is about a, someone who has amnesia. And so it is going to be very fragmented. I mean, that's kind of the point. So, well, I don't know. Maybe it's not the point, but it is a way to interpret it. And I think um, if, you're, if you're not giving your actors like any guidance about what the point of the movie is, you're getting all of these people interpreting something in a different way. And so it's going to come through in their acting, which I think it definitely does in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think that what's interesting is the tagline. So David Lynch did give it a tagline and he said that this is a love story in the city of dreams, which I mean, yes, but also it's more than that. I don't know. (laughs) I feel like it's Yes, but also no. I don't know. (laughs) There's a lot happening. I mean, I do think there is, yeah. I have an opinion on that, but we'll I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll get to we'll it. We'll keep going. I think it'll probably come up in their interpretation. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot to cover here. Um, so like we mentioned, like David Lynch insists that there is a coherent and comprehensible storyline here. And we'll talk a little bit about, which I know, I agree. Um, we'll talk a little bit about it because he did provide some clues to unlock the thriller um, when they released the DVD. So I'll read you the clues in a minute. Um But I think that most people agree that David Lynch is happy for people to mean, for this film to mean kind of anything you want it to, to people. And he really likes it when people come up with like bizarre interpretations because he works from the subconscious. Like, I don't even know if, I mean, it sounds like he does have a vision for it or like he does think that there is an ending if he said that it has a coherent and comprehensible story. Um, so I do think that there is something there. Like, I don't think he just is like, maybe there wasn't really meaning. I think he does have one, but yeah, again, it's very up. He's just been fucking with people for 20 (laughs) years and he actually was like, I actually don't know how this got made. I was writing random stuff down and here we are. I was just working for my subconscious. Just, you know, this is just one long con. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the 10 clues to unlocking this thriller. So the clues are... Pay, first one is pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. Number two, notice appearances of the red lampshade. Number three, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is, that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? And that's what we talked about um, earlier because we did mention the name of that film. Um, Number four, an accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. Number five, who gives a key and why? Number six, notice the robe, the ashtray, and the coffee cup. Number six, what is felt, realized, and gathered at the, blue, at the club Silencio? Number seven, did talent alone help Camilla? Number eight, note the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. And number, oops, this should have been 10, but I think I double counted one, so I'm sorry. This is number 10. Where is Aunt Ruth? 
And that is a question. Yeah, it's, like, really interesting. He almost, like, gives you these... It's almost like a... He's almost, like, setting up for, like, a whodunit. Yeah. But, like, who did what and why and who and yeah. who, what happened? I feel like, like this whole plot is a MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah. Right. The whole plot is a MacGuffin and the whole thing is... It's a MacGuffin and a red herring all at the same time. But you're, But it's interesting, like... Yeah, it's, like, interesting, and I think it would be cool having those clues, like, with you as you're watching the movie. Instead of, like, talking about them after and then trying to remember back, I think it'd be good to, like, have it live to be, like, okay, like, on a second or third watch to be, like, okay, let me, like, look for these things. I agree. I, I feel um, like... I do, I, I act, I have heard the clue about, like, the, the location of the accident is, like, super important. I did actually know that, um... That's a pretty famous clue, I think, of the for the film. It's like a it's like very intentional. Everything in this movie, it's really weird because I think it's common for Lynch to use like a Chekhov's gun kind of thing, and that like all, everything his movies are so outlandish, but literally every single thing in his movies have a meaning. It's really it's it's very fascinating. So, anyways, next time you watch this film, keep this little checklist handy. But I agree with you. I don't think this is something you should be doing on your first watch. This is like, watch it first, just take it all in. And then on like subsequent watches, then maybe go through this list. Cause I agree. I don't think this is something you can really like look back onto. You really have to have this with you as you're watching it. You know, you know what I'm thinking about? You know how there's, like, fans of Taylor Swift that just spend, like, so much time on Reddit, like, dissecting yes. lyrics to her songs, and there's, like, a weird subsect of, like, David Lynch fans who are just, like, just aggressively trying to dissect his movies, but in the same way that, like, Swift Swifties do. Oh my god, I just, like, died, but they're just, like, so much weirder. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. So before we jump into kind of some different interpretations of this film, I think one of the main things that we need to ask ourselves is how much meaning should we assign to different things? Um, I think one of the important things when you're looking at the analysis of this is I don't think you want to overanalyze it too much because at the end of the day, like it is ambiguous. We don't totally know. And I think that there is an element of kind of like, sassy nepas and peep that exists in this like sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and I think that I think that David Lynch is a very interesting director and that again like you mentioned he does assign a meaning to a lot of things but I think at the end of the day too like sometimes maybe they don't have as much meaning as we think they do (laughs) so I agree I do think that that's an important thing to note like again these are all kind of conjectures I almost kind of think that you have to approach it too with like maybe like an Occam's razor perspective, like kind of the most simple explanation is probably the most rational one. Um, and that's what we're going to go with here. I feel like if David Lynch said like, did you notice how the sky was blue? People would dissect that so much. Yeah. And you're just like, no. literally there is no other option. <laughs> the sky is blue. <laughs> like there is there, the sky is blue. And he'd be like, think about it. <laughs> be like everyone would freak out so yeah there is something to be said about like maybe it is maybe he is like oh notice how this this is this color or something but it's actually just a reference to like a foreshadow it's not actually something that's serious um so that is that is a possibility yes very much possibility so anyways just throwing that out there but i'm gonna start with i would say kind of the most accepted interpretation of this film and also this is the one that Naomi that Naomi Watts used to actually kind of fuel her character um so this uses dream analysis as kind of the basis of this theory and it argues that the first part of the film um is a dream of the real Diane Selwyn who casts herself like dream casts herself as an innocent and hopeful Betty Elms reconstructing her history and persona into something of an old Hollywood film. In the dream, Betty is successful, charming, and lives the fantasy life of a soon-to-be-famous actress. But the last one-fifth of the film presents Diane's real life, in which she has failed both personally and professionally, and she arranges for Camilla, an ex-lover, to be killed, and unable to cope with the guilt, she reimagines her um, as the dependent, pliable, amnesiac Rita. Um, clues to her inevitable demise, however, continue to appear kind of throughout this dream. So I think maybe that's also what Lynch could have been alluding to in some of the clues that he provided. Yeah, and that's the theory that I'm familiar with. I think that's kind of the more famous one. 
um, and is the one that I, like, have watched this movie through that lens before. Yeah, and I think the reason people also like this interpretation is if you read it this way, it's very much this kind of, like, Hollywood dream turning rancid into a nightmare, which I feel like has, I don't know, it's like a very, I don't know, noir interpretation right where there's this yeah kind of it's definitely underbelly where it's supposed to be this glamorous yes. thing but underneath it all it's like there's this very dark side of it right yeah it definitely would explain fitting this movie into the genre of a neo-noir mm-hmm. a little bit easier i think i think so too so the next theory is that diane and betty are two people that just kind of look similar like th- there's this idea that <laughs> that they're actually different like yeah yeah Rita and Betty and Camilla and um Diane Diane just they just happen to look similar which I guess is the case with kind of some famous starlets but I it's kind of boring though no dumb and also I think it negates some of the crossover between things like I don't know I don't I don't personally subscribe to this theory I think it would I think this theory is a little bit more um heavy on explaining the kind of overlapping timelines as opposed to the overlapping like plot line if that makes sense because it it would definitely like make the um it it would it would it would help explain a little bit of like what's what's kind of happening in terms of like the linear um like motion of this movie but i it's again in terms of how the plot is described through that theory not my favorite. Yeah, I agree. I think it's... I don't know. I don't I don't like that one. So the next theory is that Betty, Rita, and Diane and Camilla exist in parallel universes, which I think that this actually could also be a plausible theory. Um, I think it still kind of keeps that noir element. It's not quite as dark, I would say, as that first option where, um, where Diane is actually kind of creating this whole, like, fake story or like secondary dream universe of like you know imagining what could have been um I think that this one feels like a little bit more kind of sci-fi-y this idea that you have kind of these two parallel timelines um happening or kind of existing but I do think that that's still to me feels pretty plausible I like that one though Mm -hmm. that one's interesting yeah and then the fourth one which I also don't like this one but I'm interested to hear what you think is the entire film is a dream, but we don't know who the dreamer is. I don't know. I mean, I get it's an interesting take on the the whole movie is a dream trope. I it's my least favorite like movie trope ever. I hate it so much. I in like every movie where that's a thing, it ruins the movie for me immediately when that is like discovered. It's a cool take on like yeah, the whole thing is a dream, but we don't know who's dreaming it. But it, it just it makes it really like even more kind of like irksome because then you're like why are we why do we care what this person is dreaming like what's the purpose like why do we care if we don't know who's dreaming this because why are they dreaming this movie and why are they dreaming like two parallel universes I don't know I hate it's not my favorite like plot structure in any movie so I don't like that one very much (laughs) yeah I I agree so that's my that's that's down there with my least favorite I can't decide which one I hate more <laughs> that they're just people who look similar or no I think I I think the dreaming I feel one like is worse. people who look <laughs> yeah the dreaming is worse I think the thing about people that look similar it's just so implausible for a David Lynch movie because it's just it's just so boring like it doesn't actually ha- it's not interesting it's just like okay there's these two storylines that are happening full stop and that's like okay well that's not really fun so I I just don't think that one I just don't think that one's it like it's not that one just doesn't make sense. It's not that it's, like, a bad idea. But I just... The, the whole thing is a dream one just sucks. I hate that one. I, hate I just, like, hate that plot I hate structure. That so, much. so, anyways, again, these are the different ways that you can interpret it. I wanted to spend kind of the bulk of our time talking about them because I do think that they're very important to understanding or, or, like, potentially assigning some meaning. But kind of like I mentioned, I don't think that any of those explanation completely satisfies all of the loose ends and maybe that's intentional on Lynch's part or maybe it's just because there was so much happening and 90 minutes two hours is just not enough to tell that story 
So between the the two that you think are the most plausible, which one is your like personal favorite, I guess? I think my personal favorite and I think what explains more of the surrealism to me is the first one. I agree. I would I agree think that, that that one to me makes the most sense and I think it also feels the creepiest. Like it just feels like the underbelly of the Hollywood dream and I think to me that's what I come for in a noir and I so that's kind of where I tend to lean. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. So I did want to make sure that we mention the love scene between Betty and Rita. I didn't do a ton of analysis on this, but I do think that this is very important because we actually, I don't think, have covered any relationships to date on the podcast that have a lesbian dynamic. Have we? I don't think we have either because we don't mostly only do old movies. That's, and that's true. Certainly not and that is be a thing. very <laughs> not Hayes Code allowed. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to do like a Marlena Dietrich like movie or something I know. at some point to do that. But yeah, I don't think we have. And I and I think even for the early 2000s, it's it's actually quite, I hate to say that, but it's, you know, quite progressive, progressive for yeah. even the 21st century. But yeah. Yeah. And I do think that it's important to note because... I think the tension between them is so palpable and like it is I think very important to have characters who represent you know another type of sexuality than what is typically shown I think that that's really important to have in our films um so I'm I'm glad that we covered this one um I did read like some analysis about this some people feel like it was done very tastefully other people feel like the male gaze is still very much present and that it is still kind of hyper sexualizing lesbian relationships but I don't know I don't know interested to hear what you think it's yeah I mean I I think it's great that it's in there I think um I don't I think it's done pretty tastefully I think the fact that they're doing it at all is really important and I don't think the reason I would kind of disagree with the idea that it's done, you know, with the male, you know, male gaze kind of as the the driving force on why it's done, it is not there is because I do think there's I, I do think that it's not like it's not in the movie just to have a sex scene in the movie. Like it is part of the plot that they're the two characters that have this relationship. And I do think the they took a lot of care in casting two people that have really good chemistry with one another and they you know the relationship does develop like it's not just like a random like steamy sex scene out of nowhere like clearly these two people like have this like sexual tension throughout the film um and I do think that if if it wasn't two women I actually think you know like if um if they had especially done it where you know the the Betty character is a man and this amnesiac is this as a woman, it would be really creepy. <laughs> like, I think that would, that dynamic would be really, really creepy. So I, I do think it is important to, like, have a same-sex couple do this kind of relationship, especially if they are going to take it into, like, the, you know, like, a sexual tension kind of realm. Um, I think the issue, and, you know, this is something that, you know, obviously because of the time that it was made, the only kind of critique I would say is, like, neither, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know about the woman that plays Rita, but Naomi Watts is a straight actress, so it's, like, there is that aspect of it that, you know, they didn't, they probably didn't cast two queer people, like, actresses. Yeah, I think that's correct. um, In the movie, but I think that's, that in itself is a product of the time. I do think it is important that even in, um, at this time when that kind of stuff wasn't done, even in the 21st century, I think it's pretty cool that they did it in, in a, in a movie, so... And I I think they did it very tastefully. I agree. I think it feels very, like, tender, the scene. Like, it doesn't feel just, like, hot and heavy, you know what I mean? No, it doesn't. It's very, it feels, I think that what's interesting about that scene is I think both of the characters, too, are exploring themselves in different ways. Like, Rita doesn't remember who she is and is trying to discover, like, her identity and, like, her past whereas Betty is you know this aspiring actress who's just moved to LA and she also is lost in a lot of ways like this is a new city for her and I think them coming together it doesn't feel like predatory or exploitative like it just feels very natural and like they're the only ones there for each other in in this world kind of to take care of one another and love each other um, yeah, and they can take they can kind of take solace in each other because I think neither of these characters 
are like alphas in any way I mean both of them have been kind of taken advantage of and are also quite naive I think we saw that in the scene um in which Naomi Watts's character is auditioning and when Betty is doing that audition it's really creepy like that scene is like very odd and with the with and that's the kind of dynamic that is like kind of odd and that's like an older male actor actor and then her in the scene together and it's it's very very strange but that contrasted with their relationship it feels quite like like pure I think and um I think when you have the added aspect of like if especially if you're looking at it through the lens of the first interpretation of like this is all um uh Diane's dream is that it explains Diane having these like feelings for Camilla in that she wants she like loves her and wants this relationship like this actual like realistic pure relationship that isn't just like this kind of sexual affair and that's why she's like dreaming this like relationship in which she's given the opportunity and vice versa Rita's given the opportunity to take care of one another um so I, I I think it's that's why I think it's done fairly well yeah and I think that's the perfect analysis too because I'm assuming that Camilla is probably closeted because in the end she's getting engaged to Adam who's the director so this was either maybe an affair or um you know just something that it ended in a bad way yeah it ended in a bad way but my guess is that Camilla is probably trying to be in a heterosexual relationship because she understands that in terms of optics as an actress in Hollywood it will probably be harder for her to get roles like being in that relationship doesn't provide as many opportunities for her whereas marrying a successful director even if she you know isn't attracted to him and you know isn't really heterosexual will provide her with you know opportunities that will protect her more in the future which is realistic to what happened in Hollywood yeah. in the, you know, golden age era. All of all those arranged marriage. I mean, yeah. literally everyone in Hollywood was closeted. Yeah. So, like, all of the marriages were arranged for specifically that purpose. So, I mean, it it does, like you were saying, like, movies that kind of allude or pay, not homage, but in this sense, but kind of are reminiscent about things that were actually happening in Hollywood and kind of this, like, seedy underbelly of, like, how the politics of the studio system worked this is absolutely a perfect example of it and I think it's probably if I were to you know pause it it's probably part of the reason why they made the conscious decision to do this like just this um kind of like um you know fleshed out uh, lesbian relationship because they could kind of they could discuss all of these issues that were seen in Hollywood back in the day so I, I mean it makes more sense um so let's quickly talk about the reception I think you alluded to this earlier but this is one of Lynch's most highly praised films and it actually did pretty well um it has an 85% rating on Rotten Tomatoes which I actually found kind of surprising <laughs> I don't know it seems a little bit higher than I was expecting but I do think that this film is I don't know his movies on. have critics love Lynch mm-hmm. that's the thing is critics love Lynch because you can very you can <laughs> interpret yeah very cerebral um I personally think like if like if I were to choose this versus like Blue Velvet I actually think Blue Velvet's like a it I think it's a more like um uh palpable movie maybe not palpable isn't the right word um I think it's a more digestible movie than this because it has a very linear plot it also can be interpreted as a kind of a neo-noir-esque movie but it's this is like extremely cerebral yeah absolutely which you know I'm glad we covered it because it is very different I think than some of the other films yeah. that we've done to date but also especially in noir I, it's a very yeah. different type of noir yeah and I think I think it's a wonderful movie yeah I really love this one um, well, let's quickly do some fun facts and then we can wrap it up. All right. Starting off strong. Well, this one is like really weird and I actually, I'm excited because this kind of is the perfect bookend. The last one also kind of has similar themes. Um, but I would say that in general, a lot of the people on this film actually were really connected to the characters that they played. And I think just part of it is just that, like the actor, like the Hollywood experience, um, but Herring considered it fateful because she was actually involved in a minor car accident on the way to her first interview. 
And then wow. once she got to that interview, she learned that her character would also be involved in a car accident. And she was like, Oh, wow. <laughs> She's like, I can do this method. Yeah. She's like, I, I know about that. That just happened to me. So I can channel that. Literally. For sure. <laughs> That's really weird. Wow. Um, next one that I think is kind of interesting. So Adam Kescher smashing the producer's car windshield um, with that golf club is actually a reference to this famous 1994 incident where Jack Nicholson committed the same act. And Nicholson's nickname um, is the Mulholland Man. So take oh, what look you at will. that. But again, I feel like this yeah. is one of those films where like life kind of imitates art. Like it is kind of referencing Absolutely. These, like, pop culture, different things in Hollywood. Um, when Betty goes to her first audition, she's driven to the gates of Paramount Studios um, but Paramount Studios wouldn't allow their logo to be shown, so you only see kind of the gates, but I think everyone knows that's Paramount. But what I think is interesting is this film actually has a lot of similarities, I would say thematically, to Sunset Boulevard, which is a film that we covered last year. Um, but this shot where she's going to the studio is like almost identical to the one where Norma Desmond is is going for her comeback, where you see the car waiting in the alley. I don't know if you caught that, but I was like, whoa. I caught it. I absolutely <laughs> thought the same thing. Well, I mean, even though this has nothing to do with Sunset Boulevard, you can't help think, like, obviously the title Mulholland Drive is, like, an homage to the title of Sunset Boulevard. And that both movies are about, like, decrepit Hollywood. <laughs> so... I think it, I think you, you know, you can interpret that however you want, but I think clearly he's paying homage to like Hollywood in the same way that, um, Sunset Boulevard was. Absolutely. Um, so one thing that I did want to note, cause I think it's kind of interesting is that Diane Selwyn's last name, which is like probably intentional, I would imagine is, um, is also the last name of film and theater producer Archibald Selwyn. You're like, who is Archibald Selwyn? Well, Selwyn, along with Samuel Goldfish, formed Goldwyn Pictures. So it's Goldfish plus oh. Selwyn became Goldwyn. And, oh. yeah, and Samuel Goldfish <laughs> later actually changed his last name to Goldwyn. So Goldfish is a weird last name. I'm like, is that a real fact? I don't know. But <laughs> Are we talking about, like, Goldwyn as in Metro Goldwyn Mayer? Yeah. Oh, wow. His original. Yeah, can you imagine if it was Metro Goldfish Mayer? <laughs> And it wasn't a line, it's just like a little goldfish that was their their logo. Yeah, oh my god. It's just it's like like a little bubble. Leo, Leo, of a- Leo the goldfish. Or like Gideon oh the Goldfish. Oh my god, could you imagine? Yeah, instead of a roar, it's just like little dying. bubbles like popping. <laughs> oh my god, dying. It would have been oh, a very so different different vibe for sure. Metro Goldfish Mayor. <laughs> they would definitely be on Poverty Row for sure. <laughs> oh, that's um, hilarious. Wow, oh, interesting. Fun fact, which is kind of like a little bookend to the first one with um, Laura Herring, is about Naomi Watts. So at this point in her career, she was actually going to give up. She wasn't getting roles. She was basically had no money left. Um, she was really struggling. Um, and she, I think it was either Gwyneth Paltrow or maybe it was Nicole Kidman, but she told one of them, like, if I don't get this part, like, I don't have enough money to be here. Like, I'll have to move home. Like, this is the end of my Hollywood career. Um, and on a particularly bad day of auditioning in Hollywood before she landed the role, she was actually driving along Maholan Drive and she imagined herself, like, turning the wheel and going over the edge to her death. <laughs> wow yeah. oh my god and um anyways so when lynch requested to meet her in person he like asked her questions about herself she felt immediately relaxed like again this has been 10 years where her career just wasn't really going anywhere and she was like what am i doing am i making the right decision like should i just give up um she was so moved by her conversation with lynch that she like burst into tears <laughs> and like so I don't know. And he was like, you've got the role. You're basically yeah. Betty Yeah, and I think right that it's now. really interesting because I think, again, so many... I didn't cover a lot of the other characters, too, but I know that the actor who plays... I think it was Justin Thoreau who plays Adam Kesher. He also brought a lot of himself into that role as well. And so I do think that it's interesting um, how, you know, while people are playing these characters, I think it also does speak to this collective Hollywood experience. And, and I think just the shared kind of like trauma that people in Hollywood <laughs> that Hollywood was because it is so much of like you know when you're hot you're hot and when you're not it's like you're like is this it am I done like 
what do I do? I have, I'm famous, but I can't afford rent. <laughs> you know, it's like, so yeah. weird. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's a, yeah. Anyways. I'll never know that life, I, but yeah. alas. <laughs> alas. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good thing. Probably a good thing. Um, well, that's, it's really that's interesting, but. <laughs> well, I mean, would you recommend this film? I mean, like, how would you recommend this film, I guess, is the better question. I think this film feels. I, I love this movie. I think that this is a really interesting watch. I think when my personal preference when it comes to movies is I do appreciate films where you as an audience member have to think critically or things aren't spelled out for you. And this film is, I mean, an abundance of that. So from that perspective, I do appreciate that. I do think it's a very critical movie. Like you have to be thinking very critically. It is very surrealist and cerebral and there's so many different ways that you can interpret it like I love that and I think that that's like part of the magic of movies sometimes is is that ability to interpret things how you will so from that perspective I think this movie is so fun to watch like really really interesting it's really engaging too just the way that it cuts between these different vignettes I think it does keep you interested um that being said I don't think this movie is for everyone I agree. I don't know. I mean, yeah, for sure. It's not. I, I totally agree. I mean, I same reason on, on both fronts. I, I, I love this movie. I think one thing I really appreciate about it um, that I think old Hollywood movies don't necessarily do, the film noirs do them a little bit, but I think there's a, there's a sense, and we've talked about this in our, in older movies, kind of pre, and like something Hitchcock did that was so different was that old movies don't are, are kind of patronizing in the in that they don't really trust their audience no. to interpret <laughs> like, movies in, in the way that they want to interpret them happened. they just <laughs> they spell out literally everything but i think something we saw with hitchcock was like no i'm gonna like i'm gonna leave some stuff up to open to interpretation i think this movie obviously takes that to an extreme in that it's a, it's assuming that the audience that's watching this is an intellectual audience or a very interested audience in trying to kind of dissect what is going on, which I think in itself is really fun. Obviously, that being said, if that's not your vibe, this is not your movie. <laughs> but um, it I think if you loved just like if you love cinema and I mean this is this is like definitely like a film school one oh one like movie for sure. Um, but if you love cinema and you like dissecting movies, like this is a movie for you, and it's it is really interesting. I mean, if you are looking for an engaging movie, like this is definitely a good one. But God, just to get into the mind of David Lynch to uh, understand how he writes the things he writes is just crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, but great movie. I, I like it. And a great end to our noir vember because like what an interesting what an interesting trajectory film noir went on that it never thought it would. <laughs> so Fun, fun stuff. But um. Um, but until then, follow us on our social medias on Instagram, where we talk about all the movies and new movie news, and on TikTok, where Lydia posts fabulous cocktail recipes for everyone to know and love. <laughs> so, follow our jam journey follow there. Follow our jam journey, and until next time, cheers! Cheers!